1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Penguin Press Publishing Director Simon Winder, on the revival of Penguin Modern Classics' Crime and Espionage series. Simon Winder is the author of an excellent trilogy of books about the history of Central Europe and also a book about James Bond, which is probably a bit more appropriate as today we're not here to talk about Simon's writing, but has his capacity as the um, publishing director of Penguin Press on the relaunch of Penguin modern classics, crime and espionage, green paperbacks. So, Simon, welcome to Little Atoms, first of all.
0: That's great to talk to you, Neil.
1: I want to talk about, first of all, why we're relaunching this series now. What was the sort of impetus for it?
0: I think it was, I've done various series for Penguin over the years. I've run modern classics for quite a long time and run Penguin classics for a long time. And I created various series like Great Ideas, Little Black Classics, and these other things, Penguin English Library. And I've been at Penguin for many, many years. And I found myself kicking myself that the most obvious idea Possible to have would be to revive the old green crime jackets, um, which were created in the 1930s and and, and which, uh, until I suppose the early 80s, included several thousand books, including most of the most famous crime books ever. And for some reason, Penguin then dropped them and uh, they never revived them. And at Penguin, I'm responsible for writers like Len Dayton and Eric Ambler and John Le Carre. And um, I suddenly realized that this great, really charming color. And this legacy was like just sitting there, and I thought it'd be fun to use this as an excuse to make people rethink how they think about crime and bring back a genuine, genuinely much loved brand. And um, obviously, for it to be much loved, you'd probably have to be—I don't know—really quite old <laughs> to, to really enjoy it.
1: Thinking about then these collections of novels, whether that's you know the the black spine Penguin Classics or the green spine Penguin Modern Classics, or you know, more esoteric ones like the, you know, the old blue philosophy and history ones or these blue oh, yeah. ones. And I'm talking here about, you know, we could talk some sort of like esoteric publishing stuff here. <laughs> People will be interested. What's the sort of thought process that goes into like how these collections are selected? Are these books that are all already, you know, fundamentally under the Penguin label or or it's, you know, the Nowadays, obviously, the Penguin is just part of a much bigger publishing family. But, you know, are you having to go out to to get books in or is this like looking at the archive or like what are the sort of decisions that go into a collection?
0: I think it's always a mix. It's great to have like a core of things that you can work with. But then I think the great opportunity once you have that core is to use this as an excuse to come up with more interesting things which people aren't expecting. Um, to put things back into print, put them in a different context and things like that. And I think one of the pleasures of each of these series has been that you have the most incredibly obvious things you could put in. You know, I don't know, in great ideas, you have to have Karl Marx or Schopenhauer or Marcus Aurelius, whatever. But then you can slip in some fun stuff as well, which people might not have come across. And I think with the crime series, obviously the giants of the genre here, but I just thought it'd be great to once you've established that this is a good idea, I think you have to run with it and take it seriously and think of, well, who are the writers who should actually be back in print or should be thought of in a different way uh, and who could be put in alongside you know, the obvious great giants like um, like John Le
1: So I guess then let's talk about why this particular 10 then? So there's 10 novels that have been released in July. There's another 10 coming out in October. We'll talk about them right at the end, but we'll concentrate on the... Uh, on the 10 that have just been released in July for now. So let's talk about why this 10.
0: I think the book that really started it for me actually was um, that I read Davis Grubb's wonderful novel, Night of the Hunter. Like it was turned into a wonderful film in the 1950s. It was a famous film uh, with Robert Mitchum and Shelley Winters. And, I, Some years ago, read the novel, which was out of print in the UK, and it just really stuck in my head as being a quite extraordinary book about this monstrous villain, of, uh, set in it's sort of set in the 1920s, I suppose, no early 30s during the Great Depression, on a fetid bank of the Ohio River in West Virginia. And it's about uh, a man who is about to be executed for a crime he committed. And the money that he stole has been hidden away. And his cellmate, the guy who in the movie is played by Robert Mitchum, desperately tries to get him to tell him where the money's hidden. And the man refuses to tell him he's taken off and hanged. And then the, his cellmate is released in due course and heads immediately for this riverside town, knowing that the rest of this the dead man's family are there, and somewhere he's hidden all this money, and he comes after this family. Um, and it's a sort of, I uh, it has a sort of Pilgrim's Progress-like flavour of the all these townspeople should be able to protect the children from this monstrous person, but they all have some kind of character flaw that prevents them from doing so. And then it evolves into this terrible chase down the river where this guy who, uh, like in the movie, famously has uh, tattooed love and hate on his fingers and is a sort of hedge preacher and gives these wonderfully unhinged sermons about the nature of evil, while himself being an entirely evil figure. And so the rest of the book is a, a, yeah, the children are pursued and helped and hindered by various people uh, in their attempts to get away from this appalling figure. And it's uh, just as the movie is marvellous, you can see why And the book is just wonderfully vivid bit of Americana um, with one of the great villains um, and great descriptions of scenery um, and the sort of swampy awfulness of this particular stretch of the river. And I suppose the curious thing is that Davis Grubb never really wrote anything. It was his first book and it was immediately optioned. And Charles Lawton, the great British actor, directed it. It was the only film he directed and turn it into this amazing gothic fantasy. And, uh, but the book itself has been out of print in the UK for ages, and I hadn't realized that. So I suddenly thought, well, it's my mission <laughs> to get people to read it. And so the whole thing was based around the idea that that would be a context in which we could do it, and then everything else fell into place around that.
1: And Charles Lawton famously never directed another film because actually this was a it was a massive flop. And it's only yes, latterly...
0: it's a tra- it's a tragic story.
1: It is because it is. I mean, it's a stunning film. It's one of my very favorite films. Oh, and, brilliant. Right. yeah. And and yeah, it's a real tragedy that you never got to make anymore. Um, but yeah, this is one of my very famous films. But I had literally never heard of Davis Grubb.
0: until oh well, there we go. I'm slightly unfortunate name, it's probably fair to say. Um,
1: Um, So I wonder, I want to talk about then who, yeah, I was going to sort of ask you to talk about some of the um, authors a bit later on, and we will come back to that. But while we're here, let's talk about who Davis Grubb was.
0: Well, he was a a journalist and a uh, a sort of, yeah. he just drifted around on the edge of life in the media in New York, but he grew up uh, on the Ohio River. And so uh, during the Depression, and so the realism of the no- I mean the novel's not a realistic novel. I mean it's an incredibly heightened, like the film. It's written in incredibly like heightened sort of Technicolor prose. But he would like poured himself into this one book really, and then he died very young. He used to do like voiceovers and things on radio and things like that. Um, and so, the- but he had this just little flash of fame in the fifties with this one book, really. And when he eventually died, like this, it, even the New York Times uh, obituary was at a loss as to what happened to him that meant that he couldn't repeat the success of this one book. And uh, so it's it's a tragic tale in various ways. But on the other hand, I mean, given that virtually no one can write as good a book as Night of the Hunter, um, it's still a pretty amazing achievement.
1: So then you mentioned that that book was the one that sort of set off this selection. So then how does that lead to, to some of the others? How, why are some of the others here?
0: Well, I think the once i th- i mean once I'd thought about this idea of green you know the green spine being something that would be fun to bring back and because we have such a wonderful art department, I knew they would do something which wasn't what I had in mind <laughs> but would do something much better. It then became us well, you know we can't just publish this one book, so you know how would you how would you rethink these other books and I suppose, I mean, uh, a very good example for this is Georges Simenon. So we have republished almost all of Simenon's books now, I mean, of which there are many, many, you know, there are you know, about 100 or so, I think. And it's been a great project. But I did think, well, if we chose one and put it in this series, then people could trust the series and try that. And then that would get them hooked on Simenon in a way that if you're looking at a shelf of just enormous numbers of his novels, you know, where well, the quality is high, but you could, pick a wrong one and um, uh, I asked various Simonon obsessives who said May Gray and the Headless Corpse was the best one which it is it's a fantastic story
1: so that's a good contrast there, because you've got one book that was like the only book that, you know, or at least the only book that's well known by a writer, and then an example of a book by, you know, somebody that's written lots and lots. Yes, um, I mean,
0: it's, it's 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 true that that's, yes. So the, the issue with Simonong is where do you start, where it's very hard to offer any answer to that. And so by having one book, you're saying, you know, Try this one. And I think it's also the same with, say, uh, someone like Len Dayton, who, again, has written a huge number of books, many of them uh, incredibly good. But again, it's like, where do you start? So I kind of thought SSGB is just an incredibly enjoyable parallel history thriller, and that it'd be great to get that into more people's hands. And then once they read that, then they can discover the rest of his work.
1: You've already mentioned the design department, and I wanted to talk to you about how the design for this, for a whole selection of books, comes together in the way that it has, because they're all like, they all look great.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is that they, I mean, our art department is a rule unto itself. I mean, over the years, I've always, there's a the art director, Jim Stoddard, is a very remarkable bloke. And I've, over the years, pitched all these series saying, oh, it should look like this, it should look like that. And he always just nods wisely and pays no attention whatsoever and uh, designs, because he's a designer and I'm not a designer, um, and comes up with some marvellous, interesting solution. But we both agreed, though, that there was something about the heritage of the green that it would be really fun to keep to. And so we have this very limited colour grid of everything just being either green or black. And then a very small amount of red is allowed in every now and then. Just to add a little bit of variety, which again is what the original designs were like, and certainly the 1950s designs were like, where again, it was a very lo-fi aesthetic where the designers would, you know, really do a lot of these covers really quite quickly. And so they had to be just inspired to do some, just cut around something or just treat a photograph or whatever and move on to the next one. So that kind of aesthetic I think has been is a is a really fun one where you have all these limitations of the shape of the book. A very limited range of colors and a very short deadline
1: <laughs> there's recently been a number of quite tedious controversies, shall we say about the republication of old works I think Roald Dahl particularly comes to mind yeah, here that's... I wonder to what extent when you are putting together a collection of books and these are books that have you know roughly span most of the twentieth century in terms yeah. of, in terms of age, to what extent are you looking at the changing mores of a modern audience when you're choosing the selection of the books
0: um well i think i guess i'm really anxious about it you know like i do think we have a duty to not trick readers into reading something which they just think's really awful <laughs> and so i mean all these books pass that test i mean none of them none of them are changed but, you know, there are num- some, I mean, I think in the end, some books we couldn't include for that reason. You know, like, why would you, it, it seems like ambushing someone in the current environment to, like, see if you can get away with putting in a book, which actually is in some ways really offensive. And so we didn't do that. But also that it's a sort of, um, yeah, it's a sort of discipline, I think, to try and make sure that these books can genuinely be recommended, um, given that how, you know, the, an appreciable part of the audience is uh, anxious about this issue and we we have no interest whatsoever in uh, offending them for no particularly good reason if we have these books which actually there's no particular grounds for being upset by.
1: And in terms of, and obviously we know that we've got some more coming in October already, there's a whole other list of 10 books, but I wanted to ask if there was any that you particularly wanted to include here that didn't make this first cut of 10 for whatever reason.
0: No, oh, I think we, I mean, there's obviously there's a limit to what we can publish. You know, like we can only publish what we own. And I've bought a few things, but mostly they're things which we already own. I did actually plead with the Eric Christie estate. I thought I might just get away with it. I said, you know, what if we, I in Collins published them. And I did say like, what if we just did one, you know, non-exclusively and not a major one, but just the one that's fun. And they they thought about it for a bit and then just said no. <laughs> so I guess I'd have said no as well. So. Um, but i think it was more i mean i for me the the thing that i found quite shocking reading a lot of old thrillers was how bad a lot of them are you know like um that you really have to hunt for something which is exceptionally good and also the way that some books have just dated not in terms of um using offensive language but just they're just not very good anymore i mean i remember my parents loved helen McInnes, for example um and I remember reading her in my teens uh, on their recommendation and, and thinking she was great. But I mean, I read a couple hoping, I, mean, I really thought it'd be lovely to put some more Helen McInnes in, but they're just very, very slow paced. And people seem to spend incredible amounts of time just walking up and down streets or up mountains or whatever. And there's very, very little action. And somehow, like the whole mood of those books is just, I don't know, I just couldn't see how we could recommend. I so wanted to recommend them, but I, I was aware that I was bored while I was reading them, and sadly, you know, bored. And so, I mean, I think there's a number of ways in which books fall by the wayside. Um, And I think just turning out the sort of leisurely pace of some of these older thrillers just doesn't work anymore, sadly. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Simon Winder and we're talking about the re-release of the Penguin Modern Classics Crime and Espionage range. And Simon, I want to talk about some of the writers that are included, some of them that might not necessarily be that well-known now, so we'll probably leave John the Carré off and there's a couple of books I particularly want to talk about a little more closely as well, but we'll do that later on. I just want to talk about the writers here, although, of course, you know, do feel free to, to to mention the actual novel that you've chosen here. So first of all, tell us something about, I want to talk about Josephine Tay. Tell us something more about who she is.
0: Oh, well, Josephine Tay was just one of these wonderful writers who, she's always been famous for Daughter of Time, which is a book about this attempt to uh, work out what the real story of Richard the Third was, and that that's all. People have always loved that book. But during her lifetime, she um, wrote a number of really excellent thrillers, which are more conventional thrillers, but like brilliantly done. And the Franchise Affair, I thought, was just a, a phenomenal book. I mean, it has this great plot, which just kicks off with this little girl in this small town somewhere in the middle of England uh, claims. Um, to have been abducted by these two women living in this remote house called the franchise. And it's inconceivable that these women would have kidnapped her. It's such an odd story. But the girl has an incredible amount of detail about how she was uh, kidnapped. And it becomes increasingly clear that actually the story uh, may be true, and it's all narrated through the eyes of um, this local solicitor in this uninteresting town who only ever does conveyancing work and then through sheer bad luck finds himself having to um, work out a, a genuine criminal case. And um, the setup is brilliant because it's impossible to know who's telling the truth or what the motive would be in either case for what they're doing. And the, the hero, the unwilling hero, picks his way through this story, giving a wonderful picture of like just post-war Britain as this really quite dank and depressing place as well. And, um, it's, yeah, it's a kind of a tour de force of storytelling. You know, you don't need to know the story, but really within two or three pages, it's incredibly difficult not to keep um, reading. And it's just a sort of beautiful account of a sort of long lost England of like, a, it's a sort of cosy crime, except there's a kind of nasty nasty edge, I suppose, which uncozies it as well.
1: And the other person I wanted to talk about in a bit more detail is Chester Himes. Tell us something about uh, who he was.
0: Well, he, I mean, I bought the rights to his books many years ago for Penguin because um, I used to live in New York where I, I read lots of Himes and was amazed when I moved back to England and found that Himes wasn't in print here. He was a remarkable figure who had a very, he was a black American guy, very tough, had done time in jail and uh, moved to Paris and um, found he could write these novels which were a sort of almost a parody of what French people would expect violent life to be like in Harlem in the 50s. And their fantasies are written in this brilliantly entertaining way about these two staggeringly brutal detectives trying to keep the peace uh, in a a, a mad world of endlessly inventive super criminals and and petty hoodlums. And it's it's an odd story because of the way that his success was originally in French translation. (laughs) And uh, so he, he was always at one remove from the mainstream, of, both on the basis of his colour and his education and his fan base. He was always one remove from America. But these books are, they're sort of travesties in a way. They're not meant to be taken seriously. I mean, there's not much sleuthing, but there's a huge amount of gratuitous gunfire and bits of people being blown off and crashed cars and things. But they are incredibly enjoyable and uh, they have a kind of strange kind of recklessness to their plotting, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I just think they're all just incredibly fun. And they all involve some massive scam, which the the heroes, the somewhat tarnished heroes of the books have to uh, disentangle and work out who's scamming whom.
1: And in terms of a couple of books that I wanted to ask you about a little more closely, um, can we talk first of all about Eric Ambler's Journey into Fear, ah, which is yes. a, a, an incredibly tense and scary thriller <laughs>
0: yes I, I suppose yes again ambler is someone i bought for uh for penguin years ago and uh again i'd read him in america where he was in print and for some reason he was substantially out of print in the uk and yeah journey to is very difficult choosing which one to put into the series but i guess journey into i know all his best novels are effectively extended chases of one kind or another but What's wonderful, I think, is there's a group of, I suppose, five or six novels he wrote before the Second World War. And they're very interesting as anti-fascist novels. Right? So they're, they're great stories, but they're really a, a, also their attempts to like, kick British complacency about what actually is going on across Europe. So as, as Wonderful One calls Cause for Alarm, set in Italy, which shows Italy as just being this horrendous uh, fascist sort of prison yard. And all these, he's chased through all kinds of bits of Italy, which are totally unattractive, like a brutal world of like factories and railway sidings and so on. And uh, Journey into Fear is this super account of uh, a British engineer fleeing Turkey with a particular secret, uh, trying to get back to England, and uh, he gets on board this boat to across the Eastern Mediterranean and other people that are on board the boat who have a direct interest in his failing to get off it. (laughs) And so, again, it's just this wonderful sort of chase. There's a marvellous bit where someone is bumped off and, uh, you know, all the cabins on boats, uh, of course, have high steps to stop um, flooding. And so they open this cabin door, and the cabin is filled with gore, almost up to the, up to that level from the, this ex person who was involved in the plot. And it was made into a, a, a sort of a very cheap but enjoyable film uh, with um, Orson Welles um, as the police chief, um, the Turkish police chief, who's one of the heroes of the book. But it's 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 one of those books where it's just a it's a it's a wonderful like locomotive story. Of just a, a giant chase, essentially, but it also has this kind of: this is what Europe was like. You know that you could be assassinated, you could be kidnapped, uh, and that huge areas of Europe were essentially wholly lawless, except in relation to you know the, the Gestapo or whatever, who would be on your trail, and there's not much you could do to stop them. So it's 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 a fantasy thriller, but it's a it's a it's it's rooted in something very real. I'm glad you like it. I I, I think it's marvelous.
1: Yeah, I, I really love. I've read since I was, I was sent these ten books, and I and I've read roughly half of them since then. And and I love that one, but my very favourite one, um, the weirdest one for me that I've read so far is um, Beast in the Shadow. Oh, I'm going to let you. I'm going <laughs> to let you tell us who wrote this, because first of all, there's a story behind their name that I do not think I am ever going to get over because it is ridiculous.
0: Yes, so the uh, Japanese writer wrote. He was sort of the sort of wonderkind of Japanese literature, and his he wrote under this name Edogawa Rampo, which is almost impossible to pronounce in properly, because if you if you can speak any Japanese, it reads like reads as Edgar Allan Poe. Um, who he worshipped, and so he Japaneseified uh, Edgar Allan Poe's name as his pseudonym. And uh, in uh, he has a kind of superstar status in Japan, and wrote huge quantities of books uh, for children and for adults. And there's effectively almost uh, apparently almost unlimited supply of novels by him. I've read three of them, all of which are just cracking. And there's this wonderful guy Ian Hughes who's translated them. Uh, And they've been published in English in Japan. And so we've got uh, the rights to borrow this translation. And yeah, I'm glad you like Beast in the Shadows. It's It's a unique book, I think.
1: Tell us something about what we can expect. Actually, in all of these in all of these ten books, it does give us the list of the um the ten novels that are going to come out in October. But give us a taste of some of the ones that are that are coming.
0: Well, I think I, I think what well, I mean, the in many ways, the second set I'm more excited about than the first I guess I've lived with the first lot for so long, but the excitement for me was finding that there were some tremendously good writers. Like I've had to read a lot of rubbish to get to this point. There's, uh, I have to mention in passing this guy, Peter Cheney, who was a uh, very successful British writer and thriller writer in the 40s, who um, I was very excited by because uh, Jean-Luc Godard, rather indirectly, was influenced by Cheney and, and uh, did this film, Alphaville, which is very, very slightly based on a Peter Cheney novel. Um, So I, I had high hopes, um, but it turns out to be completely incompetent. I mean, it's it's breathtaking how poor the stories are. And they're all written in this sort of British version of Raymond Chandler speak, which doesn't work at all. Uh, and the Nadir is someone is meant to be shot by his secretary, but in fact, he's getting his revenge on her by shooting himself, but making it look like she did it, but with a revolver on a long piece of elastic. So after he shoots himself, the revolver zooms into a hole in the ground on this elastic. And I was really, I was thinking, you know, like, how much more time do I have to waste um, reading such terrible rubbish? But then um, the wonderful writers that came forward, who have aged really well are um, there's a couple of British writers of, who were very, very successful in the '60s and '70s, but so went out, died or, and went out of print before ebooks or print on demand. And so they were genuinely out of print, but who people had loved. There's these two writers, Anthony Price and Michael Gilbert both of whom just wrote spectacularly good, well-paced uh, thrillers, generally with a Cold War background. And, uh, I mean, Anthony Price is just one of the great setups ever, is this, uh, this harmless bloke who is a historian who's studying the Battle of the Somme. Suddenly it becomes clear that historians who study, British historians studying the Battle of the Somme are being murdered one by one. <laughs> and uh, these mysterious figures attempt to murder him uh, go wrong. So he lives to tell the tale. And uh, anyway, with this marvellous setup, it's like, well, why on earth would uh, someone be trying to murder British historians who are interested in the Battle of the Somme? And the story unfolds uh, incredibly, enjoyably, um, on the basis of a, uh, showing the reader an extremely good reason, uh, ultimately, why actually this is, uh, a very, this is um, an urgent issue for certain people. And uh, so that was a great discovery. And then there's this wonderful American writer, Dick Lochte, who um, I think, again, I suppose he wrote, this is his first novel, Sleeping Dog, which he wrote in the early 80s. So again, I mean, it it went out of print in the UK ages ago, and he's still alive, actually, a a wonderful guy. And again, it's one of those wonderful set-up novels, Sleeping Dog, where it's about set in Los Angeles, and it's about this uh, 14, 15-year-old girl who's disconsolate because her dog has disappeared. And a friend of hers jokingly says, oh, you should get a private eye to um, find the dog for you. And so she takes this seriously and goes finds this Raymond Chandler hero-like guy, tough-talking, chain-smoking, hard-drinking, a divorced, um, haggard detective, and says, can you help me find my dog? And because he has nothing better to do, he decides to find her dog. And the story is told in alternate chapters between her and him. And quite quickly, it becomes clear that um, it was a really bad mistake to take on her her case. And the dog has disappeared for very, very complicated and appalling gangland reasons. And it's a very, very funny book. It parodies the genre in various ways. But also, it is a genuinely exciting and, and horrifying story about why this girl's dog is no longer with her. And I can't say any more without giving away unacceptable levels of plot. But it is very, very funny and extremely enjoyable.
1: So I've been talking to Simon Winder. We've been talking about the re-release of Penguin Modern Classics, Crime and Espionage, Green Paperbacks, first 10 of which were launched midway through July, and um, the next 10 will be out in October. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about them. Well, thank you very much indeed. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented, and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST... And published by 89UP. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.